morning. Well, good morning again. This isn't deja vu. Uh, I realized that I had a much better counterpart a minute ago. Uh, but uh, I am Mike, one of the pastors here at CBC. Hey, a little Mike fact, if you didn't know. I am the youngest of three children. So I have uh, an older brother who's five years older than me, then a sister who's in between, about uh, two and a half years in between us, uh, and I'm the youngest of three. So my, my dad, who's kind of a jokester, used to say, uh, if Mike was born first, he would have been an only child. <laughs> and so my response is, absolutely, because when you win the lottery, you stop buying tickets. <laughs> yeah, that's not a true statement. <laughs> that's not true. Uh, no. But in all seriousness, uh, being the youngest does, does have its perks. Some of you guys may know, like, I fully embrace the spoiled nature of being the youngest. And again, uh, if you are jealous, well, you should have been born last. That's the deal. Um, but it also came with some hardships, specifically in the nature of what I was talking about with that older brother, five years older than me, who's a great guy. I love him. But when I'm 10 years old and he's 15 years old, and an argument inevitably enters into a physical nature, uh, it's not a fair fight. And I can remember the feeling of being literally like pinned to the ground with my uh, brother on top of me, just physically dominating me. And there was nothing I could do. I was completely at his mercy. I was helpless. I was pinned. It was simply waiting for him to tire out and be done and get, get up. That was it. I was helpless. Uh, and I can remember that feeling. And flash forward, you know, 30 years later, uh, I still can feel that feeling sometimes. Uh, and it's not because my brother's in town. It's visiting. It's not. It's when life sometimes feels like it's pinning you down, right? When there's circumstances or things going on that are not in your control, but you feel like are controlling you. So, so maybe they're kind of fear-based, which sometimes that feeling is, is fear-based to me when it's like, man, the, the economy out there is just dictating my life and I'm so afraid of, of what it's going to do or global events that we see on the news all the time. Or maybe it's the decisions that other people are making that I have no control over that are impacting my life, right? And that are pinning me down. And whatever it is, it could be whatever, whatever you might think about specifically in those maybe fears or anxiety moments in your life. What might be pinning you down? Do you guys ever feel that way? You ever have that thought like something is just holding you down? And, and maybe it's not a fear-based thing. But to be honest, there's things that might be controlling us, ruling over us, reigning over us, that aren't fear-based, but actually could be desire-based. And this is what I mean. Just as fear-based things seem to be dictating and controlling our lives, the things that we desire the most, the plans that we make, the goals that we have, the things that we want to achieve, those things can actually be driving us and ruling over us as well. We have these plans of, I want to be at this stage in my career, or I want to be financially at this level, or I want to live in that neighborhood, or I want to achieve these things. And again, it's not fear-based, it could be desire-based, but those things might also be subconsciously driving us and dictating us and ruling over for us, and in certain ways, even pinning our lives down to them, things outside of us that are ruling and reigning over us. So we may not think in those terms, and we may not have those categories in my brain, but I just want to ask you if you're ever thinking about, are there things that might be ruling and reigning over me? Fears that might be pinning me down and holding me down that I think are controlling my life, or even those same desires that are actually controlling me and holding me down. So the questions I ask for you are simply this. What do you most fear? Is, some of you could probably answer that pretty quickly, because if you deal with anxiety or deal with these issues, you might be wrestling with that a lot, but it's stuff that might keep you up at night, or things that you are worried about constantly because you think those things are controlling your enjoyment and the direction of your life. What do you most fear? But like I said, the other side is, 
What do you most desire? Is there anything that's so consumed your imagination that you daydream about all the time that you might either consciously or subconsciously be planning your life towards that say, actually, my life is being controlled by that desire because every day I'm trying to manipulate my life to achieve that end. Make sense? Whether or not we realize it, many of us can feel and believe and even act like there's things controlling our lives. What in the world does this have to do with Palm Sunday? (laughs) Well, Palm Sunday is ultimately about answering the question, who actually rules and reigns over our lives? And what does his rule and reign look like? And we're going to see, especially in this Palm uh, Sunday story, it looks way different than anybody ever imagined. So let's jump in together this story. Uh, If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, we're going to look at uh, John chapter 12, um, starting in verse 12. Uh, about when the king comes into the city. Now, you may not be familiar with the story of Jesus, so let me just put it in context a little bit. Uh, When Jesus was doing what was called his public ministry, it's three years that were leading up to uh, the cross that he would take. So for those three years, he was teaching, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, he was doing an incredible amount of uh, time loving and caring for people. He was doing miracles, uh, uh, releasing people from spiritual bondage, multiplying food and walking on water, doing amazing things. But in that three years, as he was teaching his disciples, he was always telling him, the greatest purpose, the thing I'm here ultimately to do is is to die and rise again. But all the way along the lines of three years, he would say, but my hour hasn't come. It's not time. It's not time. Well, in our story right now, it's time. Jesus is now entering into the city of Jerusalem to do the thing that his life was led to do, which was to take the cross. But Palm Sunday It's celebrated kind of the week before the Resurrection Sunday as Jesus enters into the city. Uh, And it's actually Passover. So if you're familiar with our story of Exodus that we've been going through on Sunday mornings, Passover, the celebration of God's miraculous deliverance of the Israel uh, people from uh, the wicked hand of the Egyptians, the uh, Jews would celebrate that every year. And in Jerusalem, there'd be this big festival, this big feast. People from all over the region would come to the city. I mean, it was bustling and booming. And so it is Passover. It is Jesus at the culmination of his three years of ministry. And in fact, there's a large crowd with Jesus now because he has just completed up until this point, what is his greatest miracle of all in raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, I will just encourage you, If in your personal entourage, you have somebody that was once dead, but by your voice, you made them alive again, you're going to have a following, okay? You're going to have a big crowd, and that's what we see here. So read with me verses uh, 12 and 13 of John 12 as we see Palm Sunday. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So let's stop here and understand what's going on. Like I said, Jesus has this big crowd. He's entering into Jerusalem. There's this massive party, you know, celebration going on because of Passover. And these people are welcoming Jesus into the city. But not just a normal welcome. You can see here, it's this royal ceremony. It's this royal welcome for a king. And they demonstrate it in a couple different ways. 
called Palm Sunday because you can see ripping palm trees down, laying palm leaves down on the ground. Other gospels will say that some people are taking off their cloaks and putting their cloaks on the ground. They were paving out this royal pathway to welcome the king into the city, into their lives, and celebrate who he is. But we start to see something different even in the words that they say. So let's look at what they see here as they welcome. The first thing we notice is what do they shout out? They shout out, Hosanna. Hosanna. What does that mean? What, what does that word mean? Well, it actually means God save. Or, or really, God save us. Or even more, God please save us. It is a cry. Is a broken-hearted cry of desperation, begging for deliverance. God, please save us. These people were broken. They were hurting. They were afraid. They were pinned down by something, and they needed deliverance. But it wasn't just what they cried out for. You see here who they cried out to, where it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They wanted deliverance, and they wanted deliverance from a king, somebody who would come rule over you. Now, you have to ask the question, if you want deliverance from a king, what do you want them to deliver you from? Whatever's currently ruling over you, right? You're crying out for a new ruler, a better ruler, a new king, because you need someone to replace whatever's ruling over for you in the moment. Well, who was ruling over the Jewish people right now as they were in Jerusalem? Rome. They were literally asking God, save us, deliver us, free us, king, from the horrible king that we have right now, Caesar, Rome, the oppression of this political tyrant that is dominating our lives. So this cry out, is a cry out for deliverance from a king. But then, John tells us, it gets really weird, but really wonderful as we see it. Because keep in mind, as these people are looking at the powerful Rome that's in their view, they're looking for a king to deliver them from that. What does John say? Immediately after they cry out, Hosanna for a king, what does John say? And Jesus found a donkey. Just like we thought. Just like the plan, right? Just like everybody expected. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples, understandably, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So even in the moment, the disciples were like, what in the world is going on with this donkey? Uh, and they didn't understand something that didn't make sense till the other side of the cross. Which will make sense. But you'll notice here, John doesn't just say, hey, Jesus found a donkey. John said, Jesus came and riding on a donkey as it is written. This was part of the plan. What John is quoting there is uh, the prophet Zechariah. And about 500 years before this event, Zechariah, a prophet of God, was writing. 
And in that time, if you know anything about the people of, of Israel, they, just, they have seasons and long histories of constantly being exiled and under the burden and oppression of foreign rulers. And they are no strangers to being overrun and pinned down by oppressive forces. So after one of their exiles, the, the, uh, the Jewish people are back in their homeland, but they are completely broken. The homeland's a mess. They see no hope. They're disheartened. They're discouraged. They're still feeling oppression from other enemies bearing down on them. And God raises up Zechariah, and Zechariah 9 says, Hey, take heart. A king is coming. A king that will bring that peace that you so long for. A king that will bring you into his kingdom of stability and security and hope and love and care. But here's the deal. Here's how you'll recognize him. He's coming on a donkey. <laughs> Again, what? What does that mean? Well, it makes more sense if you actually unpack the verses before that in Zechariah, where God compares his king to the kingdoms of this world. If you read Zechariah 9, 1, 1 through 8, if you look at that, God describes the kingdoms of this world and how they uh, force their kingdoms upon other people. It says they amass wealth and power and strength, but then through violence and oppression and enslavement and bloodshed, they dominate their opponents and they bring war horses and chariots and that's what their kings ride on. But your king, your deliverer is not of this world and not of this kingdom and doesn't go by the means of this world. And the first thing you'll notice is this king is not going to come in on a war horse. This king is not going to come in on a chariot. This king is not going to come with, come with swords blazing and an army behind him. No, no, no. His kingdom is different. His entrance is different. He will come in on a donkey. In fact, Zechariah says, your humble king will come on a donkey. This is where God is very clearly telling us his kingdom and his king are not like anything else in this world. Not like anything else in this world. In fact, uh, I'll steal a phrase uh, from uh, the late theologian and author. You might be familiar with him. His name's Dallas Willard. Uh, not just because I'm from Dallas, but his name's Dallas. Uh, I don't know if he's ever even been to Dallas. Uh, but Dallas Willard. But this is what he says. He says specifically about King Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus, that Jesus came in preaching and leading and teaching and bringing an upside-down kingdom. An upside-down kingdom. And when we think about Jesus, not just the fact that he comes upside-down riding on a donkey instead of a war horse, but you think about the messages that Jesus preached. The most famous sermon any person has ever given in the history of humanity, regardless of what you believe, is the sermon Jesus gave in Matthew 5-7 through 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most influential, transformational sermon ever recorded in human history. But you remember the contents of that sermon? Jesus was coming in and flipping everything upside down. He would say things like, hey, the world tells you, blessed are the comfortable and the wealthy and the healthy and the powerful and the well-to-do. And Jesus says, no, blessed are the broken, are the poor, are the humble, are the hurting, because they're crying out to God and he's hearing them. He flips it upside down in lots of other ways. For example, we're familiar with like the retaliation, right? The world says, hey, when somebody smacks you, smack them back. And Jesus says, nope, when somebody hits you, turn the other cheek, upside down. And the biggest way 
he preaches this upside down way of thinking. He says, the world is going to tell you your life is all about you, making much of you, building your brand, building your influence, building your wealth, building your power, building your notoriety. And another way of saying that, building your kingdom. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you want to have an impact? You want your life to count? You want life to matter? Lose it. Disappear. It's not about you. See, this upside-down king riding in upside-down on a donkey preached this upside-down message of a kingdom that makes no sense to this world and its power systems and its, uh, the ways that it, it goes for influence. But again, in case you don't already believe me, think about when this king actually first entered into the world. What we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of the king. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 2? When the Magi, the wise men from the east, shortly after Jesus is born, they've been told about the promised Messiah, the promised king, and they come to find him. Where do they go? They go into Jerusalem. And you remember the story? They go into Jerusalem and they start asking everybody, like, hey, where's the king? Like, where's the king? Where's the king? Like, as if everybody should know, there's a king born. Surely it's in Jerusalem. Everybody should know about it. Where's the king? Where's the king? Because kings are born in palaces, in opulence, to fanfare, to notoriety. No. This upside-down kingdom, this king was born into obscurity, into anonymity, into poverty, with this young couple alone. You see how this donkey means more than we think it does? This donkey tells us that this king is part of an upside-down kingdom to this world, and he is coming to rule, and he is coming to overthrow, and he is coming to establish his kingdom, but it's not the way we think. So, I'll be honest, at this point in my study, I'm starting to feel like convicted. So I stopped. I stopped studying. It's like, I don't like that feeling. Well, I started feeling convicted about this upside down. Because I'll be honest, like many of you, like, and I, I, I follow Jesus. I'm, I'm somebody whose life has been transformed. And, and I still fight some of these temptations and some of these distractions to the world's kingdom. But I want to live for this upside-down kingdom. I want to live for the kingdom that matters. I really do want that. But I, I just, I, I struggle with it. And I, I don't know if some of you guys feel that same way, that tension of, man, I, I know that this kingdom that God calls me is what I'm supposed to live, but I really struggle with it. So, I had this convicting thought, though. Okay, let's say, let's somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who, who doesn't follow Jesus, doesn't plan on it, whatever. Let's say I gave them full access to see my life, right? I said, hey, you can see my money, my bank account, all my transactions. You can see exactly how I spend my money. You can see my calendar. You can see how I spend my days, how I organize my days, the things that I value with how I spend my time. In fact, you can see into my heart. You can see the things that I fear the most keep me up at night. You can see the things that are deep down that I desire the most. Maybe some of those selfish desires. And I, was, I let somebody see my whole life and they looked at me. If they were able to see that, what kingdom would they think I live for? Would they look at my life and think, man, that guy's crazy. Upside down. Look how he, he does this, how generous he is and how he spends his time. And like, man, he's crazy. He doesn't make any sense. Or would someone look at my life and say, yeah, kind of makes sense. It doesn't look that different than mine. The way you spend your money and the way you save your money, and the way you like, yeah, it kind of looks like mine. The way you kind of spend your time and spend your free time, yeah, it kind of looks like me. 
The things you keep that keep you up at night that you think are controlling your life? Yeah, keep me up at night. Those desires that you have deep down about what you want your life to be about? Yeah, those are the same desires that I have in my life. In essence, how different, how different does my life really look than someone who doesn't live for the upside-down kingdom? That's a question I'm asking myself. I don't love the answer that I feel. <laughs> um, but it, it begs the question, though, what does it really take for someone or for a group of people like us in this room to be the kind of people who actually do live for that kingdom? Who actually do live in a way that looks crazy and upside down in the world around us? What does it look like to be citizens of Jesus' kingdom? And I think the, actually the, the better way to explain it is actually through somebody else explaining it a little bit. Um, so I have a book here that I've been reading. Uh, the, the title, don't let it turn you off, Soul Idolatry Excludes Men from Heaven. Uh, so first of all, I guess women are fine. Um, but that's right. All right, Soul Idolatry Excludes... So it was written in the 1600s. So, hey, but so I, I think the first draft of the title was Your Best Life Now. Um, or like, Follow Your Heart. Five Ways to Happiness. Uh, anyways, no. Soul Idolatry. It's an intense title, but here's what pr pretty much, it's David Clarkson again. He wrote this in the 17th century. And here's his main kind of idea with the book to say this. You and I and everybody else, we were made for God. Simply put, you and I were made for God. And all of who we are was made for God. So that every component of who we are was to find ourselves in our completeness and meaning in God. So that any place in our life that doesn't find its fullness in God, we're going to replace God with something else that we're looking at. So we have all these areas in our life where God is meant to be the fullness and reign and rule, but any time we don't look to God to those things, we're going to replace them with false idols. For example, he says, one of the things you can look at to see if your soul has idolatry is what do you fear? And he says this, that which we most fear, we worship as our God. For fear is an act of worship. He that does fear does worship that which is fear. What he's saying is, if we're honest with ourselves, the thing that we most fear, we think controls our life. We think rules and reigns over our life. And there is only one thing that rules and reigns over our life, and that's God. So if we think something else does, we've pulled God down and put that thing as God over our life. So we've pulled that thing down and says, oh, the economy, man, that rules and reigns over me. Or you know what, that relationship, that rules and reigns over me. Or what's going to happen to my kid and I can't, I can't like that, that fear rules. Whatever it is, Clarkson makes the argument that whatever we fear the most, we worship because we believe it is the thing that has power over my life. And that's idolatry, putting something else in the place of God. But he says the same thing about desire. Let me read that. He says this, That which we most desire, we worship as our God. That which we most adore, which we most desire, and to be most desired is that worship, that honor, which is due only to God. To desire anything more, or so much as the enjoyment of God, is to idolize it, to prostrate the heart to it, and worship it as God only should be worshipped. 
In other words, he's saying if there's something that occupies our imagination and our daydream and our attention that says, if I can achieve that, if I can have that, if I only grab that, then I'll finally be joyful and happy and complete and content. That is the thing that will bring my soul satisfaction above all else. If that thing is not the God of heaven, then something else is taking his place. So what do you daydream about? What do you think, man, if I could only be rescued from this and get this, then my life would finally be happy and I'd have meaning and value. Clarkson is saying, we are way more idolatrous than we ever thought. Because there are places in our heart that God alone deserves to occupy, that we've replaced him with other things. And we can see it in the things we fear the most, and the things we desire the most. What in the world... Does that have to do, again, with what we're talking about? (laughs) It's simply this. It has everything to do with why the king came in on a donkey. Because my biggest threat, the thing that's pinning me down the most, is not Rome. It's not any government. It's not an economy. It's not a relationship. It's not a failure. The thing that's pinning me down most is an idolatrous heart that expresses itself in broken fears and broken desires. Here's another way of putting it. Our biggest threat is our sinful, idolatrous heart. And our greatest problem isn't needing rescue from something out there, but it's needing rescue from something in here. So hear this. This is the point. This is the Palm Sunday message right here. Listen to this. This is why our king comes in on a donkey Because you don't ride a donkey to charge up to a palace to rip Caesar off his throne. You ride a donkey to charge up the hill of Calvary to take a cross to defeat the sin that's on the throne of our hearts. That is why our king comes in, not on a war horse, not in a chariot, but a donkey. Because he is more powerful than we ever imagined. His overthrow is greater than we could ever dream because we're pinned down by something way stronger than we ever imagined. And he was going to defeat it for us and bring his kingdom, not with a sword, but with a cross. And you come in on a donkey. That's how our king makes his kingdom. He does it by conquering the root of all these false fears, of all the oppression, and all the things that are legitimate things that we need to be standing up against. But he comes to take the root out by taking the cross for our sin. It is the ultimate upside-down act of our King. That the sinless, glorious, perfect, holy God-man would suffer in our place for our sin on the cross that Jesus, our King, took not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He wasn't worshipped and, and wrapped with praise. He was ripped apart and wrapped with mocking robes. The palm branches in the parade were quickly traded for torture and beatings and being stripped naked and suffering in our place for our sin on the cross. It is the ultimate upside down And the Apostle Paul would put the ultimate upside down by saying this. He would say about Jesus, He became sin who knew no sin, so that we, sinful idolaters in the heart, might become the righteousness of God in Him. The ultimate upside down. He 
became sin so we could become righteous. It's our sin that pins us down more than any other ruler. And the defeat was that our king was pinned upon the cross. And in that, our, our humble, donkey-riding king of love, he demonstrated a rule and a reign and a power that no king has ever shown. That is our Hosanna. That is our king saving us by taking our cross. And so as a side note to the story, by the way, as you think about the cross and the suffering servant up there, the suffering king up there, if in the darkest moment in human history, King Jesus was completely ruling and reigning and bringing about a goodness that no one saw. In the darkest moments of your life, King Jesus is ruling and reigning and can bring about a goodness you can't see right now. That's free for today, by the way. That's just a side note. But as Milt prayed, that suffering king on the cross who died did not stay in that tomb for long. Just like he came into the city, he came out of that tomb victorious and alive, conquering sin and death, bringing about his kingdom of redemption and righteousness with him. He is king over death. He is king over sin. He is king over all. Again, that is our Hosanna. That is our God who saves us. And again, to look at the Apostle Paul, he describes it this way by saying this, he, Jesus, has delivered us. Hosanna delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. For those of us in this room that believe that you believe the story is true, you've been changed by it, you know that your king Jesus took the cross to free you from your previous kingdom of sin to his kingdom of love and grace and mercy. And you see that king, when he came into the city, when you believe on him, he comes into us comes into us individually. He comes into us collectively. He came, came into the city and he comes into us. What does it look like? What does it look like when that King Jesus comes into us? I'm not talking about just individually. We have to think about ourselves as the body together. What does it look like when Jesus comes into us? You know, Jesus uses a lot of descriptions to talk about his beloved people, his redeemed people. He talks about him as his bride and he is just jealously in love with them like a groom is jealously in love with his bride. He talks about us being, like I said, a body where we're all equal members of each other and we need each other and we're fulfilling his purposes together and how we live. He talks about us as a family, brothers and sisters with deeper bonds than just genetics and blood, but eternal bonds as a family together. But he also calls us a citizenship of his kingdom. We are citizens of a new kingdom. So what does it look like what does that upside-down kingdom look like when people who follow their king? Well, the simple thing is we look like our king. We love the things that he loves. We hate the things that he hates. We lay our lives down for each other and for our enemies. We let go of the treasures and trappings of this world and live generous and sacrificial lives in view of eternity and viewing our lives through the lens of eternity we don't shy away from suffering for the sake of Jesus. We take sin and holiness and repentance seriously. We show each other grace upon grace and we give ourselves that same grace. We are people of radical forgiveness, unbelievable generosity, extraordinary grace, passionate worship. We pursue God through his word and through prayer, through co commitment to community 
through giving and through serving. We share the truth about the kingdom we belong to and the hope we have in Jesus. In other words, when the king comes into us, we look like the king. And it changes everything about us. Every square inch of our lives transformed by King Jesus because we're citizens of a new kingdom. And when we fall short of all those things I just listed, and we will, we remember the truth of our King, our Hosanna, that we bear His perfect righteousness, that He bore all our sin on the cross, and that it's all a gift of grace, and that grace presses us into deeper devotion to Him. So as citizens of the kingdom, it absolutely changes the question what do we fear most? It's not economy or these fleeting world empires or even our own scary, you know, declining health or broken relationships. That's not what we fear most. What we fear most is the Lord of heaven, is the one king who rules over all. What do we desire most? Desire most. And this again, it's a fight. But the citizens of the kingdom, do you know what we desire most? To honor the king. How we live. We live in such a way, whether it's in triumphs or trials, uh, in, in poverty or in plenty, in life or in death, we say, whatever my life does to showcase to him and a watching world the greatness and beauty and worth of who he is. That's what I desire most. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. So again, from the Apostle Paul, he kind of wrote about this kingdom life this way. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It is the fear of God that persuades us how we live. But look at that word. Look at it up there. For the love of Christ, what? Controls us. Do you know what that word means? Controls? It means constrains or restrains or pins us down. We're not pinned down by our fear. We're not pinned down by selfish worldly desires. We are pinned down by the love of our King. His upside-down kingdom, coming in on an upside-down donkey, taking a cross for us. We are pinned down by love. And I have one last thing, but I, I want to invite the, the choir and, and the band to come on up um, as I kind of finish up this last point. There's one more time that our king comes. He, he not only comes into the city on a donkey. He not only comes into our hearts in a kingdom. But the king comes, he's coming again. When Jesus rose out of that tomb, spent time before his followers, ascended to heaven, he made a promise and it's coming back. Uh, he's made his promise and it's coming true that our king is coming back. And honestly, if you're wanting Jesus to come on a war horse, Revelation 19 is your chapter, right? 
Because when Jesus comes back again, when our king returns, when he comes back for us again, he will come on that war horse. He comes to put war fully and finally against sin, fully and finally against its curse, fully and finally against his enemies. But when that king Jesus comes back and when that king returns, he will bring with him a new heaven and a new earth where sin and its curse and death and all the trappings that our broken fallen world brought with us will be eradicated. And those of us who are part of his kingdom will live in the presence of our glorious and risen king in the perfection of life, in the glory of love, in the fullness of joy because of our king and his upside down kingdom. So as we begin to turn our hearts back to worship again, I just want to remind you, when the king comes, whether it's in an upside down way, in a manger, born into a manger instead of a palace, when that king comes into the world, love reigns. When that king comes into the city, not riding on a war horse, but riding on a donkey, he does that because love reigns. When he takes that cross and goes into that tomb, it's because that king reigns in love. And when that king returns for us, when he comes back again, the reign that he brings with him is love and love and love. And that absolutely changes everything about today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are praying for the deliverance that only Hosanna can bring that you would deliver us, not simply from the things we fear or for the false desires, but for those idolatrous hearts that don't have you ordered right in our life in the first place. And Lord, as we look to you and the fact that you came into that city on that donkey, we know that our greatest need is not rescue from those fears, but it's rescue from our sin. Because that donkey led to that cross, which led to that tomb, which led to the resurrection, which led to you coming back and Lord, I pray that you will have your love and your kingdom reign in our hearts. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.